0: Today's scripture reading will be from Daniel chapter 7 if you would join with me in standing for the reading of God's holy and precious word Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 through 14 as I looked thorns or thrones were placed and the agent of days took his seat his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool his throne was fiery flames its wheels were burning fire A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court set in judgment, the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion were taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. May God bless the reading of his holy and precious word. Amen. Amen.
1: Turning your Bibles with me to John chapter 9. Adjustments here while you're ch- turning over there. John chapter 9. <clears throat> Today we'll be looking at one of the few miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. We've noticed so far... Where in chapter 9, there's only been a few that that John has mentioned or that John has paid, paid special attention to. If you can remember back to the miracles we've already addressed, for John, each of the miracles is not merely focused on the miracle itself, but rather it points to some spiritual reality beyond the miracle. This is how John does. When John presents a miracle, it is to teach something beyond the miracle. So we've already seen that when, when Jesus turned the water into wine. We saw that the miracle was meant to demonstrate the inauguration of the reign of the Messiah. Uh, in which there would be a, a time of great abundance. So uh, the, the turning water into wine was not just to help the, the feast that was taking place. But also to point to the reality that when the, in the time of the Messiah, in the end times, there was going to be a time of plenty. When we saw Jesus heal the official's son, we saw that miracles themselves cannot lead to true faith and belief. When we looked at the invalid that Jesus healed in John chapter 5, we recognized that ultimately we are each spiritually invalids and need a savior. Today we will witness Jesus healing a man that has been born blind. This miracle, like the others, points to a spiritual reality that every one of us are born blind and need our spiritual eyes opened by our Savior. The 41 verses we will look at today tell one fascinating story of grace and forgiveness, but also gives us several challenges along the way. So what we'll do today is we're going to walk through this narrative together. We'll walk through this whole chapter. And as we walk through the chapter, uh, it, as, as application points come up, we'll, we'll pause for a second to make those applications and we'll continue forward. I'll do my best to make applications along the way as fits the text. So let's, let's pray before we start and before we dive into John chapter 9. Lord, thank you for this passage. Lord, thank you for this chapter in your word um, it's one big story that just shows your grace and shows your redemption, shows what you have done for us. God, I pray that as we as we come before this text, that um, that the, the challenges that you would give along the way would be clear. That Lord, as we as we see uh, what the ultimate what the ultimate point of the narrative is, Lord, I pray that we would understand our need for a Savior, Lord, and that if we are believers, that we would rejoice. In that we have been, our spiritual eyes have been opened. In your name, amen. Amen. So starting in verse 1, it says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So it says, as he passed by, there's no certain reference of time given. Usually, and typically in the Gospel of John, you'll see chapters that start out with, or sections that start out with, say, after these things. That's usually John's shift from one period of time to another period of time. This this doesn't take place here. What it's what may, so that makes this a little bit obscure. We're not certain that this is the same day as what was going on in chapter eight, but yet we. We don't know that it was a different... We don't know one way or the other what was going on here. Um, it says as he passed by, it's very likely this could, this could be going on the exact same time of the Feast of Tabernacles that we've been in that, that day, that time period that we've been in since chapter 7. Uh, it's, very, it's very also very possible that, that this is a time period between uh, one period and another. If in chapter 10, we see that uh, they're at the Feast of Dedication. Um, that's three months after the Feast of Tabernacles. So this, this could just be sometime within that three-month period, the same day as, as still going on at the Feast of Tabernacles, or it could be sometime in the middle period. We just don't know for sure. Um, so uh, we need to be aware of this. So that we, don't, we don't know what the sequence of events is here. And really, it's irrelevant. We, just, we know that it's in within this three-month period, uh, somewhere along that line. So uh, he saw a man blind from birth. So his disciples and his disciples asked him, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was a common belief in that day that sin and suffering were closely connected. And to a point, that's true. Right To a point, that is true. All suffering and sickness is a result of mankind's fall into sin described in Genesis chapter 3. All of it. Those of you who have been struggling through the flu... Or struggling through the cold that we've had. We live in a fallen world. That's what happens in a fallen world. It is the result of sin. Now what the problem was, what the, the misunderstanding was, is that many of these people drew a really tight connection between individual suffering and that individual's sin. Now again, Scripture does say that that is possible. Right? Remember Miriam got sick and it was because of her rebellion against Moses. So her sin led directly to her suffering. And there are other areas of suffering that could be direct results of sin. But that's not always the case. Much suffering is just because we live in a fallen world, and that's just the way it is. So, um, but the disciples, again, we see they have this understanding that this person is born blind. They have this type of suffering going on. So there must be this person or his parents must have sinned. Right. There must have been some individual specific sin that led to this particular uh, area of suffering. Now, again, remember, we are also talking about uh, we're talking about a spiritual dimension um, going on in this passage. Look how Jesus responds. Jesus answered it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus points out that you're incorrect in thinking that there is a direct correlation here between one person's sin and this particular suffering. Remember, though, we are also referring to the spiritual reality here. So Jesus is talking to a man who has been born blind spiritually every single one of us. Because of our sin, because mankind has fallen into sin, every one of us are born blind, spiritually speaking. Every one of us are born in darkness. Right? That's where we all begin. Now again, it's not, it is because of sin in general that we are born into that darkness. Just like this man. Now, again, when Jesus, so then when we see Jesus say it's not because of this man's sin or because of his parents' sin, he's not saying that sin has nothing to do with the fact that he is blind, right? Because blindness would be a ramification of the fallen world that we live in. What he is saying is that there's not that tight connection between individual sin and individual suffering. We should not conclude that our spiritual blindness is therefore not the cause of our sin or is, uh, is not... Uh, is not because of our sin. Uh, Jesus concern in er, er, because of our individual sin. It's it's how we're all born. Um, Jesus' concern in verse 3 is not focused on the spiritual dimension at that particular point, but rather on the disciples' misunderstanding of the connection between individual sin and individual suffering. Um, So uh, there we go. So verse 4, let's continue on here. Um, It says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus makes this statement here. He, so he, already, he makes a statement in verse 3 that, that, the, that what, why this, this man was born blind so that God might be glorified, essentially, so that God would perform some works in him. And we have to be about those works while it is day because the night is coming. Um, Jesus is saying here that there's going to be a time when the work of God cannot be done. Right? Um there's there's going to be a time when that's not going to be able to take place anymore. So he says we must work while it is still day. The application here then, what Jesus is telling his disciples and what He's telling us, is that our time is short. Right? We don't have et- we don't have eternity to do the work of God, not not in the sense of sharing the gospel. Right, our time is limited on this earth to have the opportunity to share the gospel. We must be about sharing the gospel. One illustration that often gets brought up in the discussion of, of our responsibility to share the gospel and and and, and, uh, and God's God's, uh, God's uh, salvation that He brings is the question about what are the, about those who have never heard the gospel before. What about those people who maybe live somewhere else and they live in a foreign country and they've never heard the gospel? They've never heard the name of Jesus. They've never seen a Bible. What about them? Usually the the question itself is predicated or is even phrased as this. What about those innocent people who've never heard the gospel? Right? Like one, one pastor responded to that question this way. He said, absolutely. Every single one of the innocent people who have never heard the gospel, will go to heaven. The problem is, there's no such thing as an innocent person. Right? So when we ask that question, we assume, never heard the gospel, must be innocent. Right? But the truth is, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understand. There is none who seek after God. In fact, the reality of that is is made even more pointed when, when at the end of Matthew chapter 28 jesus makes this claim he says or that makes this command he says go and preach the gospel to the nations baptizing them in the name of the, in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit why are we told to go if they're innocent why are we told to go if they if if, if not hearing the gospel means that they're not that means that they're okay Right. The, 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 the truth of the matter would be that it would be ridiculous for us if, if, if somebody was saved or could go to heaven by not hearing the gospel. It would be foolish for us to share the gospel with anybody. Right. But wouldn't that, that would go exactly against what God told us to do. Right? If the, if, the, if the most loving thing I could do is, if, is not tell somebody about the gospel so that they, can't be, so they, so that they can remain innocent and, not, and, not, and still be able to go to heaven, then why would he tell anybody? The truth of the matter is, though, Jesus tells us to share the gospel. Therefore, the truth must be that there is no one that is innocent and that people are going to die and will go to hell apart from Christ. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We have work to do. There are people who have never heard the gospel. There are people who have never heard the name of Jesus and they will die in their sins. And it is our responsibility to go. So moving on here then, uh, look back down at verse 5. It says Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We saw him make the same statement last week. He says, I am the light of the world. Then verse 6, having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he, announced his, uh, then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. As we look at this, this, this is a, it's interesting how Jesus does this. Right? Why does Jesus make mud out of, out of this and anoint his eyes with that? there's, there's many many theories none, none of which are really uh, or none of which are completely satisfying. There's lots of different opinions on why mud, why this, why that. The, the truth of the matter is that's what Jesus chose to do right This is how Jesus chose to work this miracle. More importantly and more significantly is, is where Jesus told him to go and wash his eyes. right now again, remember Jesus could. Had he desired to do so, he could have just said, boom, and your eyes are healed. But instead, he chooses to have, to have this process take place. Now, again, the process itself is not what heals him. Jesus is the one who heals him. Amen. Right? The mud, there's nothing special about the mud. There's nothing special, besides the fact that it came from Jesus, about the spit. Right? <laughs> there's nothing special about the pool in and of itself. The, the mud in the pool did not heal the man. The reader should clearly understand that the healing was the, that the healing took place by Jesus. The Pool of Siloam, which is interesting here, John points out the significance of this, right? He, he makes sure that we understand this is what the word means, right? And that helps us understand if John is making a big deal of that, then what's the significance of that, right? In the Pool of Siloam, the, the, the word Siloam, it says, means sent, Now, again, what's interesting about this is that Jesus is the one who is sent by the Father. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of John so far. Jesus is the one that is sent by the Father. So he sends him to a pool that would remind the reader of Jesus' status as sent by the Father. Right? Well, the pool is called sent. The, The pool called sent is the instrument of healing by the one who is sent, who is the healer. So Jesus sends him to this pool called Scent, and that ends up being an instrument that Jesus uses to heal this man. Continuing forward here, uh, at this point, what's interesting about this in the narrative, Jesus, formally speaking, Jesus drops out of the narrative, right? Jesus isn't mentioned again until near the end of the chapter. In fact, all the focus then becomes on this man who is healed. Yet Jesus never really stops being the main focus of the conversation, So as we look through this, we'll notice Jesus isn't there anymore, but the conversation is still, this whole conversation of what do we do with Jesus? How do we understand who Jesus is? Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Now think about that. Think about how, how, how strange this must have been. Your entire life living in a neighborhood where this guy is there every single day, begging for money, and you know he's blind. You know that about him because you've seen him your entire life, and all of a sudden here he is walking around being able to see. You're like, what? Is it? Who is this? The is this the same guy? Are we sure about this? And this is exactly the conversation that starts taking place by the neighbors and those who had seen him. Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, "It is he." Some said, "Yeah, that's the guy. He's the guy. I recognize him." Others said, "No, but he is like him. He looks like him, right? I Maybe mean, he's our twin brother we never heard about, right?" That's The, the some of the theories that people use about the resur- you know—to try to explain away the resurrection. It couldn't have been. Maybe Jesus had a twin brother, and that's who they saw. Well, no, it's not true, right? There's no evidence for that. Um, so here they, you have some people. Ah, oh, it's just somebody that looks like him, right? Um, and uh, and uh, he kept saying uh, nobody is like him, but he kept saying the guy who was born blind. He says, "I am the man. It's me, guys. It's me. The same guy. I watched all you guys. I know who you guys are. I remember. I recognize your voices, right? It's me. Okay." You don't need to worry about that. It is absolutely, I am, I am the guy who you think I am. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes open? Right? Well, how'd that happen? Why, why are you, well, how can you see now? Right? And then he goes on to tell his testimony. He goes on to share what happened. He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he he said i don't know (laughs) when did he get his sight back it was after he washed right so jesus had put the mud on his eyes walked away he said go to the pool saloon wash your eyes walked away when the guy was able to see jesus wasn't standing right there he truly has no idea where jesus is he's like i don't know i couldn't see i told you what happened i went and cleaned and i had sight where is he i don't know Right? He wasn't there when I opened my eyes. How am I supposed to know that? So these people were completely dumbfounded. We see, we see also in this, we see the beginning of this man's understanding of Jesus as he moves toward faith in this chapter. Remember, we already saw with the man, that was, the man whose son was healed that, that miracles do not automatically mean belief. Now again, I had that misunderstanding as a kid. I, I thought Jesus touched the person, they're automatically saved. Right? Jesus heals the person, automatically saved. Well, here we see in this chapter that this man has a progression towards salvation that doesn't finalize until the end of the chapter. At this point, he just says, there's that man called Jesus. It's all he knows about the guy. Is He's the, the guy that, he, that call, is called Jesus. That guy healed me. I don't know. I mean, that's just who did it. He doesn't know much about Jesus. He doesn't, he's not sure yet. He doesn't have all the details. He just, he's moving in that direction. He's just heard about Jesus. He, he knows who he is, but that's all he knows. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been, been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Uh-oh. <laughs> We've seen this before, haven't we? In John chapter 5, when Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath day, it was not taken well by the religious leaders. And here we go. We find out this detail that we didn't have yet. It was Sabbath. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made uh, mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. So imagine the scene here. The neighbors and stuff. Hey, what happened? No, you're not that guy. Let's let's go ask the religious leaders what they think, right? No, again, that makes a certain amount of sense. A miracle took place. Let's ask the people who know more about miracles, who know the Bible better. Let's ask them if they know what's going on. All right, They go to the Pharisees who would have been, who would have been the leaders in the synagogue uh, and ask them, hey, what's going on here? Some of the Pharisees said, um, or so the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed, and I see. <clears throat> Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, "How can a man who is a sinner do such things?" And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, "What do you see about? Him? What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes?" He said, "He is a prophet." So we see this is the first interrogation of the blind man as we walk. As we walk. In the, the following the flow of the narrative, you have the neighbors have this discovery and they have this, they're interested. And then now the Pharisees are interrogating him. We found out the miracle took place in the Sabbath. Um, so we see that they had the exact same reaction they had in John 5. They're, they're really suspicious and they think that this guy who did the miracle obviously couldn't be a good guy because he did something on the Sabbath day. Um, this holy day that they were not supposed to do any work. Um, uh, so that, that's the Sabbath was. It was a day that was set apart. They weren't supposed to do any work. Now, again, in the Old Testament, the commands about the Sabbath day are fairly broad, and there's not really a whole lot of specificity about what it means to not work. There are some areas that are specific. However, the, the, uh, you know, the command is to not work on the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees wanted to make sure that they and nobody else was breaking that law. So they tried to interpret, what does it mean to work? How much work is too much work? What is work? How do we define work? So they had all these qualifications and all this um, interpretation that they had done. They had basically made their own laws to help make sure everybody can obey the other law, right? So they had added all these different uh, qualifications. So in this particular instance, uh, rather than rejoice in the healing, the Pharisees are more concerned that the miracle was considered a breach of their laws. There is probably three fronts that they're concerned about. First of all, making mud would have been considered work. Think about that. That's very silly, isn't it? He spit in the ground and rubbed it around made mud. <gasps> you worked! No, no! Right? And there were, there, So that was one concern. He, would, he had made mud. Right. They, they keep asking, how did this happen? How did this happen? Because they want to hear the story again. He made mud. Oh, no. Can't do that. Two, the man was born blind, so the healing could have waited until another day. There was there was discussion about you could heal somebody on the Sabbath day if it was like an immediate need. Like they would die otherwise. But otherwise, it, it, you know, it could wait till later. Right. So Jesus performs this particular miracle. During, uh, to a person who didn't need to have that take place, right? He would have been just, he still would have been blind tomorrow, right? He could have healed him tomorrow. Why not wait till then? So they're, 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 uh, they're offended about that as well. And three, some rabbis at the time did not believe that it was acceptable to anoint the eyes on the Sabbath. So not only did he make mud, but he also anointed his eyes. And those two things, that's just work. And that's that's sinful and you can't do that. Right? Again, none of these commands are in Scripture. None of that is in the law. This is all in their own minds, in their own heads. Even though was, Jesus is not formally in the text at, the, at this point, the whole discussion is focused not on the man born blind, but on the controversies surrounding Jesus. Look back again at verse 16. As some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Right, again, as we've seen in the previous chapters, there's division. People aren't sure what to make of Jesus. There's, dis- there's discussion, controversy, differences of opinions on what to, how to understand who Jesus is. And at this point, you have some other group of people, they, another group of the Pharisees saying, but the guy still did a miracle. How, how can he be a sinner if he did this thing? Um, well, while the point can be well taken. It's still a pretty weak argument. Because in Scripture, uh, while Moses was trying to convince Pharaoh to free the Israelites the Egyptian priests were able to perform some of the same miracles that Moses performed. right? So it was possible to perform miracles outside of being a follower of God. So again, the argument, now again, the point is well taken, but it's a fairly weak argument. So ultimately, the second group has a weak argument at best, And if the first group are correct about their interpretation of the Sabbath, then they have made the better argument. However, as we the readers know, their interpretation of the Sabbath is incorrect. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So as we come to this, we see that the arguments, both arguments fail. Ultimately, whatever Jesus does is keeping the Sabbath because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Look then at verse 17. The man who was born blind, they asked him, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. Again, we see this progression. He goes from the man he, who's called Jesus to he's a prophet. Now again, he doesn't say he's the prophet. He's not he's not he, At this point, he doesn't understand Jesus to be the prophet like Moses from Deuteronomy 18. He doesn't uh, uh, perceive him to be some specific prophet. Uh, uh, you know, figure that was prophesied about in scripture, rather he is seeing in general he is a prophet he is making another step toward faith we've seen that people claim that Jesus is a prophet or even the prophet like Moses but we still see that even those people have had inadequate faith even though the man has not yet come to salvific faith he is moving toward it quicker than his judges his judges rather than seeing the light and opening their blind eyes grow deeper in their own darkness Verse 18 then, uh, moving forward. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents. Right, so the man's witness on its own is not enough. They say, this guy claiming this about himself, that's not enough testimony. Let's go ask this guy's parents. The leaders seek out his parents to see uh, that he was truly born blind. And look how this works out. Um, They called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, verse 19, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? Right? They want to ask the parents the same question. Verse 20 then. His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Right? It's all this back and forth. It's going in circles. His parents, they're very careful. In fact, in the next verses in 22 and 23, it says why they're careful in the way that they answer. They're very careful in how they answer the question. Their hesitance in answering is shown in verse 22 and 23. When they say he is of age, they're saying that he is able to speak for himself. He is able to, 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 uh, to speak on his own behalf, which means he's over the age of 13 in their culture at that time. Over the age of 13, you were considered a man, and you'd be able to speak on your own behalf. And verse 22 says this, and John comments on this. He says, his parents said these things, right? That they, they kind of basically passed the buck. They didn't want to answer the question. Uh, his parents said these things because he feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Right, so his parents are, are, are fearful of what the Pharisees might do to them. They didn't want to lose their stand in the synagogue. They, didn't want to loo- they were afraid to lose their position as, as members of the synagogue. And so they were, they, they were hesitant and careful to, an- to not to answer the question the way that they wanted to or the way that they should have. Verse 24 begins then a second interrogation that takes place. Um, after they talked to the parents, they moved back for the second time. They called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, right? All we want you to do is tell us that this guy's a sinner and we're okay, right? Just reject this guy. Don't say anything. Again, they are, their focus is not on finding out the truth. Their focus is on accusing Jesus. That is all that they're focused on. They don't care that this man was blind and now he sees. They don't care that this miracle took place. They're really not concerned about this debate on whether or not he's a sinner. They want Jesus gone. They want him dead, as we saw last week. They want Jesus dead. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Verse 25 then. Look how the man answers. He answers in much more wisdom than these guys answer. Look at this. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. In fact, what he's essentially saying is like, that's your guy's area, not mine. You guys are the ones who know the law. You guys are the ones who know your Bibles. You guys are the ones who would know whether or not he's a sinner. He's kind of deferring to their judgment in some sense at this point. Now, again, later on, he'll get a little more sarcastic and, and kind of become more bold. In fact, this paragraph, you see his boldness continue to grow exponentially, Just fascinating. As he moves closer to, um, to, uh, to his decision for Christ, he grows in boldness. This man is careful not to judge Jesus about whether or not he's a sinner. At this point, he's willing to defer to the judgment of the religious leaders. Look at verse 26 then. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Didn't he already answer this question? Mm -hmm. Okay, now look how he answers. He answered them, I told you already. And would you not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? And he gets a little bit snarky here. He gets a little bit sarcastic with them. (laughs) He says, look at this question he asked them. He says, do you also want to become his disciples? Why do you want to hear all this? Do you want to follow him? Do you want to obey him? Do you want to be his disciple? Is that why you want to hear this over and over again? Because I'm kind of misunderstanding what you got going on here. In fact, what's, what's true, is he, what's really more true is that he actually understands them so well that he frustrates them. This, the religious leaders are termined, determined to maintain their view that Jesus is a sinner and have yet been unable to substantiate their claim, so they need to go back over the evidence. All right, tell us this again. Tell us the story again. We've got to find the place in the story where we can nail down and say that Jesus is wrong and that Jesus is a sinner. The man born blind quickly discovers that their professed impartiality is little more than a show, right? They're trying to be impartial judges, right? The the Pharisees probably thought to themselves, we're just trying to be fair in this whole thing. We want to know whether or not he's a sinner. We're trying to be fair. And the, the man born blind sees that that's just a show. They're just, they're just appearing to be that way. They have no desire to be fair to Jesus. And so that's how, why he responds the way he does. Because of this recognition, recognition, he responds to them sarcastically. And asks them, do you want to be his disciples? Now again, that does not sit well with the Pharisees. That doesn't sit well with them at all. As a matter of fact, it says, uh, verse 28, they reviled him. Spoke harshly to him. They accused him. They bit back at him. Right? They are not happy at all. They have basically they have just complete he is this man born blind in, in the Pharisees' minds, this man born blind has just offended them deeply. And look how they respond. They revile him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. Right? We follow Moses. Because we're way better than you are. You want to follow? Do you, you follow this guy? Is that what you're trying to tell us? Right? You can sense there's a lot of there's a lot of <laughs> it's passive aggressive behavior maybe, right? They're 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 reviling this guy and they're they're coming back at him. The sarcastic response it angers them, likely because their game has been discovered and now they begin to resort to hurling insults. Their insults come from the ultimate question over authority, right? They say, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Right? They are deeply offended at this. And instead instead of listening, instead of, trying to uh, take this man and then listen listen carefully. Uh, Instead, uh, they, they start throwing insults. They refuse to recognize the truth about Jesus and instead they want to insult. So as a side application, I want to make a quick side application here. This isn't as directly clear in the text. That's why I say it's a side application. Their authority here is questioned, right? They say, we're followers of Moses, right? We have this position of authority. We have this special place where the Pharisees where the disciples of Moses who do you think you are is essentially what the question is that they're getting at their authority has been questioned when our authority is questioned we often resort to the, in the same type of insulting behavior this is all over Facebook right you see somebody says something on Facebook that somebody else disagrees with and you go oh who do you think you are And it's just biting and backbiting and punching each other in the face and it's all online and so nobody actually literally gets hurt. But it just becomes, it's just a mess, right? Um, social media has become this playground for, the, for people who have pride issues in some sense, right? Um, uh, their authority is, is, when our authority is questioned, we often resort to the same type of insulting behavior, right? Maybe somebody comes to you and says, you know, I really don't think you're right about that. Well, you're stupid. <laughs> what? <laughs> Isn't this what the isn't this what the Pharisees are doing? In fact, we'll see at the end, that's exactly what they basically do say. You're just stupid, right? I'm going to take my ball and I'm going home, right? You guys have said something mean to me and I don't like it, so I'm just going to act, act like a child. But we do the same thing when our authority, when we think, when we have, or we think we have some kind of authority, we often feel the need to hold on to it. Even if it means being insulting to others. Rather, we should be humble in these circumstances. Perhaps we have something to learn. Any authority we have is ultimately from God, and thus we should maintain that authority with humility. Continuing on in the passage then, the man answered, I saw the man answers, Why? this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, and if anyone is a worshiper of, and if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This man were not from God, he could do nothing. This guy's gaining insight, and he gains boldness. Right? These are these religious leaders. They have the authority to kick him out of the synagogue, and his parents. Had, were, were too scared to, be, to speak boldly. But this man continues to grow in his boldness. And he says, this is ridiculous. This is an amazing thing. You guys have no idea where he came from. And yet he's performing miracles like healing people that were born blind. No one's ever done that before. There's nowhere in the Old Testament that that happened. There's people that were blind, had become blind from some other disease or from some other circumstance, that those people were healed. But never had a person born blind been made to see. How could that be someone who's a sinner do that? This is a little bit different than some of the things that, that the, 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 Egyptian, the Egyptian prophets were doing. Right? These are categorically different types of things going on here. And he is, in his boldness, then he, again, he says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this one man were not from God, he could do Nothing. The fact that these guys are even questioning whether or not God is God, or whether or not this man is a sinner, is a ridiculous question in the first place. This guy is saying clearly: this man is from God. Um, This could be. He becomes more and more bold as the conversation progresses. What he finds astonishing is not his own belief, but rather the unbelief of the religious leaders. How can you not believe in him? He performed an astonishing miracle of healing, and, the, and they cannot even figure out where he comes from. An application on this point, we can speak boldly against opposite, opposition to the gospel. We certainly do not want to go looking for a fight, but when someone aggressively confronts you about the truths of Scripture, you do not have to roll over or assume that they have the upper hand. If what you say has firm grounding in Scripture, then you absolutely can speak with boldness. Maybe you say, I just don't know enough. That's fair. We are all called in God's Word to study. You'll be reading your Bibles. Know your Bibles. Get, study the Word. If there are areas you don't understand or questions you have. Seek out answers. God gives us a community of faith for a reason. Right? We need to learn from each other too. We're not called to just be by ourselves. Because we will have questions. We will have these kind of things. We will need to learn more. And we had each other to learn, learn that from. We shouldn't settle for ignorance as if it's some sort of badge of true faith. I don't know complicated things because I just have simple faith. Aren't I awesome? Right? I don't think that's okay. I'm pretty sure that we're, we're called to grow deeper in our faith. We're called to learn more. Right? Um, study to show yourself approved unto God a work that needs not to be ashamed. Brightly dividing the word of truth. I know we should rather seek out the answers so that our faith can be strengthened with proper understanding of God's word to do the best of our abilities. Someone may claim that they have some kind of authority, but we have the very authority of God's word. That authority far outweighs the authority of any human. Now look how this responds. This man shows his boldness. Look at verse 34. They answer him, again with the insult throwing, you were born in utter sin. And which you teach us, and they cast him out. Right? They have, they had the same understanding the disciples had. You must have been born in complete sin to have been born blind, and you think you can tell us something? You're no longer welcome here. Right? In in, in a defense of their authority in a, de, in a defense of their own pride, they respond by throwing this man out of the synagogue, refusing to. Themselves be able to see. Verse 35 then, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus finds the guy that he had, that he had healed. He says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus asks this all-important question. We should understand that Jesus is not asking whether the man believes that the Son of Man exists, but rather if he has placed his faith in the Son of Man. As we read in Daniel 7, as Todd read this morning, the Son of Man is a title which references the Messianic figure depicted in Daniel 7, the one to whom the Ancient of Days gave dominion over all kingdoms. Not only is Jesus asking if he has put his faith in the Son of Man, who has been incarnate and and uniquely reveals God to man, but he also emphasizes the dominion which the Son of Man has, especially as a judge. Do you believe in that guy? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you put your faith in him? This guy then asks, and and rightly so. He answers, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's asking. He's not asking just for more information. He wants to know who it is. Who is the son of man? Who is that guy? Look what Jesus says here. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, which is also cool. Remember, he was born blind. He sees him. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. I'm that guy. I'm the son of man. I'm the Messiah. I'm standing right in front of you. Do you believe in me? Do you put your faith in me? He said, Lord, I believe. And you worshiped him. The man responds in true belief and worship. Where the Pharisees reject that, the Pharisees, and all these, we've seen all these people reject Jesus, right? Here we have somebody, a man who was born blind, lowest of the low, comes to Jesus. He says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Look at the, look, notice the change here. I mean, there's a, there's a change in language as this, ver- this, even this conversation in this paragraph takes place. He says, he says to him in, in, uh, in verse 36, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, right? The word sir is a, is a, is a title. He's just saying like, you know, person over there, you know, somebody who I'm respecting in the way I'm talking to them. Right. But then look at how he refers to him in verse 38, Lord, I believe there's a change from just, Hey, you're some guy I respect to you are my Lord. You are the Lord. And we understand exactly what that confession meant. Because look at what happens next. He worshiped him. He responds in worship. He doesn't just respect Jesus or see him as a great example of bravery or as a good teacher. No, he understands him to be equal with God. Only God deserves worship. If he was to worship Jesus and not believe that he was God, his action would be blasphemy. There is no indication of false belief in the text. Therefore, we must understand that true belief includes a certain level of understanding about Jesus. This guy understands that Jesus is Lord and he worships him as God. So there is some doctrinal belief that he has about Jesus that causes him to worship him that leads him to worship him there are some levels of understanding when we talk about repentance and confession part of confession is confessing biblical truths doctrinal truths that are required to believe in jesus to be a christian if you do not believe that jesus is god i'm sorry you are not a christian if your understanding of Jesus is that he was some nice guy that lived 2,000 years ago, and by looking at him and reading about him, I can learn how to better myself, and I can be a better person. Sorry to you it. You're not a Christian. The God that you may claim to worship is not the God of the Bible. It's some God that you have fashioned of your own design. Because God has made very clear who he claims to be. Jesus has made, has made very clear who he claims to be. <clears throat> Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do, not see, uh, who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In coming to redeem those who would believe, there is an inherent judgment upon those who would not believe. Jesus came so that those who are spiritually blind may see, and those who think that they have spiritual sight may be be blinded. One friend of mine said that one of the hardest things about sharing the gospel in the South is that many times you have to convince people that they aren't saved before you can convince them that they need to be saved. Like the Pharisees, there are many people that believe that they have spiritual sight, but are blinded by their own arrogance or their own lies. Not only are the people who claim to be Christians that are far from true that not only are there people who claim to be Christians that are far from true belief, but there are also billions of people on this planet who follow other religions, thinking that in them they will find life. Yet scripture is clear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Once again, the imperative, the command of the Great Commission stands in full view. We must be diligent to take the gospel to the nations. So many people are dying in their sins, and yet many of us may be afraid to talk to our neighbors and our community about the gospel, let alone cross borders and oceans for the gospel. Continuing on to verse 40. Some of the Pharisees heard him say these things, heard these things, and said to him, Are we also blind? The Pharisees want to find out if this statement applies to them. You saying that we're blind? Who do you think? Again, they're very offended right now. I'm sure that they are not happy about overhearing Jesus say this, right? Are you trying to say we're blind? Excuse me. We are the Pharisees. We are somebody. We read our Bibles this morning. we talked about. Verse 41, then, Jesus said to them, this is a little bit of a confusing statement, so we're going to walk through what Jesus is doing in this particular passage. So this is, Jesus makes this statement. He said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. And now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This quote is from uh, another, another scholar. He's explaining this passage. He says this, Jesus' response to their question was an answer that penetrates beneath their spiritual blindness the sinful foundation on which it rests if they were blind right that's essential there's a past tense there if you were blind right in the sense that they had judged themselves and had been illuminated by the light they would not have sin right if they were blind that means that they currently now do now have sight right the Pharisees would not could not admit that they were blind right they think we've always had sight what are you talking about They couldn't admit that. Jesus is saying, if you were blind, in the sense that they had judged themselves and had been illuminated by the light, that they would not have sin in the sense that they would not be guilty of sin. Isn't that a beautiful truth right there? That if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been blind and now you see, your sin is not counted against you. You have redemption from that sin. But since they claim that they can see, They are in reality blind to the depth of their sinfulness. The fact that their sin remains suggests that they are pronounced guilty before God. So here these Pharisees are. They believe that they have sight. They think that they have all the answers. They've got it all figured out. And Jesus says, you are blind. And because of that, your sin remains in you. And you are still guilty before a holy God. The truth is that we are all born blind. If you are still blind but think you can see, in other words, if you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've not given your life to Him, this is what it's saying about you right now. The judgment still remains over you. Jesus is the light of the world, He offers spiritual sight to those who are spiritually blind. We are offered only two choices. First, we can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior and receive sight or we can reject jesus for some salvation of our own design and remain in darkness the second option leads to death the first option leads to life if you hear this passage this morning and you believe that you are in the category of the spiritually blind there is great news you can receive sight through jesus christ in a moment we're going to have an invitation during the invitation Uh, or, or after the service, I would love to have the opportunity to share with you how you can become a follower of Jesus. We've also seen other challenges in this passage. Church, are we actively doing the work of God, the work of the kingdom of God, or are we too busy building up our own kingdom? Our time is limited. We have a clear command in Scripture to take the gospel to the nations. Now, while, the, while that involves many, many things, taking the Gospels of the Nations as a church involves lots of things, are we as a church prepared to be obedient to that command, whatever that might mean? As we move into our invitation, maybe there's some way God is speaking to you through the text that I've not mentioned. This time of invitation is an opportunity to either use these stairs as a place to pray, an opportunity to use your seat as a place to pray, Or as an opportunity to come and talk to me. And as always, I'm always going to be available after the service to talk. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity that we had to look at your word. Thank you for the great truths of your word. Lord, this passage that is this brilliant and fascinating narrative about this man who was born blind. God, we thank you that you have brought light to the world. That you are the light of the world. And through you, we can have salvation. Because of your death on the cross and your resurrection, we can have life. God, I pray that you would be with anyone in here who does not know you as their Savior. May you, um, may you call them to yourself today. Lord, I pray that we would have the boldness as this man became, as he grew closer to his salvation. Lord, he had boldness to, to, uh, to even sh- start showing that he does truly believe in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would have boldness as well. We would have the boldness to find out and make sure that we know for sure that we are spiritually, our eyes are spiritually opened. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.